You know what they say, good things come in small buildings. That's certainly the case for the Prince George's African American Museum and Cultural Center, where a young, passionate executive director has a vision for a museum that's truly part of the community, a place that's created by its neighbors for its neighbors. Don't be fooled by the simple exterior of the museum or the fact that it's tucked in between a tire shop and commercial warehouses. This small institution is punching way above its square footage with exhibits, events, and programs that have impacted people from the block across the street to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, a museum consultant specializing in podcasting for museums. And this is a show for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. Museums are the keepers of our history and culture, but they are also reflections of who we are now. In each season of this podcast, I explore a different country, state, or region through its museums. In season one, I traveled around Iceland, and now I'm visiting the museums of Maryland to discover how they reflect and shape this state's unique identity. This episode is sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. My name is Malik Glee. I'm the executive director of the Prince George's African American Museum and Cultural Center. I've been here in this capacity since September, so it's about nine months. I have been at the museum in general since fall 2016. Um, Originally, I was at the museum as a contractor with my nonprofit, Chocolate Redux. Um, Chocolate Redux is a nonprofit organization that looks to preserve the Black Washingtonian experience um, through historic preservation, advocacy, and education for our youth. Um, So I was brought to the museum given that role. Um, And I worked here as a teaching artist. I did programming and curriculum development. And somehow I transitioned into (laughs) the ED role. And I've been here since September, and I'm loving it. Awesome. So tell me where we are. We are in Prince George's County, Maryland. It is a suburb right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, we are actually very close to the northeast quadrant of D.C. We're on Rhode Island Avenue, which is a very busy highway, um, the Route 1 corridor. And we're also part of the Gateway Arch District. So in Prince George's County, the cities of Hyattsville, North Brentwood, Brentwood, and Mount Rainier collectively create the Gateway Arts District. So we see a lot of arts institutions um, in this vicinity. And why is there an African-American museum here in Prince George's County versus Anne Arundel County or Carroll County? There's an African-American museum here in Prince George's because Prince George's has the highest population of African-Americans in the state of Maryland. Additionally, Prince George's finds itself often situated as like a gem in the country as a self-sustaining African-American enclave, a suburban enclave. And we're not usually thought of as suburban people, but here in Prince George's, we occupy a suburban space. Prince George's has the highest household income for African-Americans nationally, as well as the highest percentage of those who have advanced degrees. So we see a lot of doctors, or when I say doctors, I mean just folk who have their doctorate here in Prince George's County. So it's a very successful region um, with a rich history. 
North Brentwood is the first African-American uh, township in Prince George's. In the latter half of the 1800s, the, the land was actually owned by um, a white farmer who would um, partition it and sell it very reasonably for the recently freed enslaved African-Americans. Um, and so they were able to purchase this plot of land. And since the founding, they started their own um, schools, libraries, firefighters, police officer unit, very self-sustained. So Prince George's, while it is very suburban now, prior to, I'll say, about 1970, 1975, it was a very rural country area, a lot of farmland. And the African-American community, which migrated from Washington, D.C. to Prince George's, helped develop it to the suburban space that it is today. North Brentwood, it was very self-sustained. Um, and they had to be for many years, given that their neighbor in Brentwood, and there's actually a barrier which would really um, divide the racial line between the black North Brentwood and the white Brentwood. And we have residents to this day, um, elder residents who would share their experience or who have shared their experience with me um, that they couldn't cross that line overnight for their own safety. So there's a great history here. And the museum, in conjunction with the town of North Brentwood, Brentwood and our neighbor, the Neighborhood Design Center, are looking to beautify and, and really revere this barrier and share a little bit about the history here. I want to take a quick break here to talk about this episode's sponsor, the Lindhurst Group. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. I've known Bob for a few years now, and I've long been impressed by his passion for our field and commitment to making it stronger. If you need help with your history organization, I highly recommend visiting lindhurstgroup.org. That's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org to learn more about how Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. The Prince George's African American Museum and Cultural Center has been a community-oriented institution from its founding. The organizing efforts began in 1999 when the Friends of North Brentwood saw drugs funneling into Prince George's County from D.C., and decided to create an institution that would remind the African-American youth in the area of their great history and deter them from dangerous lifestyles. It was a decade-long journey to realize that vision. Malik tells me how one woman almost single-handedly made the museum a reality. Lillian Beverly was the first African-American woman to be mayor of North Brentwood, and it was her tireless work, along with the support of others in the community, that enabled the museum to finally open in 2010. As soon as you enter the museum, you are hit with um, Mothership to the Ancestral Plane. It is an exhibition featuring artwork from our high schoolers. We work with three high schools in Prince George's County, Wise, Northwestern, and Suitland High School. I'm also Suitland alum, so okay. it feels great just to see the students now doing great artwork. I was an art student at Suitland myself. The exhibition is looking at Afrofuturism as a visual art aesthetic. They were led by our education curator, Dr. Sinatra Smith, and our team of um, teaching artists. And unfortunately, because of the podcast, you can't see the beautiful artwork, 
But I'd just like to show you Hannah here. Um, you can see um, that they were really inspired by the film Black Panther. I think okay. that kind of helps situate the conversation and give them some context. Through their artwork, they're investigating not only the aesthetics of Afrofuturism, but there's some elements of storytelling, particularly with Suitland High School. The students have conveyed uh, and drafted their own stories in fictitious superheroes that put Black people in a futuristic space. Um, and I think Afrofuturism is a very important art form just because we ne necessarily see representations of a diverse future, yeah. no matter whether it be race and ethnicity or political posture or sexuality, the future is all, always almost presented as a very homogenous, white, thin, middle to upper class space. There's only no, there's like never any acknowledgement of any nuance as far as personality or character. So that's why we decided to focus on Afrofuturism and also given a plus that Black Panther was such a big hit, the students were already talking about some of those elements. The next space you'll enter is sharing our stories treasures from the museum collection. Um, we have over 1,300 artifacts, photographs, documents that help tell the story of the African-American experience here in Prince George's County. All of these materials have been donated by county residents. And here we're only looking at a very small percentage of what we have in storage. So I can share um, some of my favorite items yeah. here. One um, is the WOL call sign. It takes up so much space, so it's very prominent. But so this is like a, a huge, is that neon sign that takes up the whole wall? Yes. So um, it is a sign from the early 90s. It's a part of the Radio One family. Radio One is a, a national um, media corporation founded by Kathy Hughes. Um, and her headquarters was firstly here in Prince George's County with the first station WOL. Um, since then, the company has now an uh, international span. Um, and their headquarters now is in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is our neighbor. But I should mention that what is very important about Radio One is that it's the first publicly traded media for African-American-owned media company nationally. They just made waves as far as in the business sector and positioning themselves to have a great network of investors, given that they are publicly traded on the International Stock Market Exchange. But additionally, they do help tell the African-American experience in our varied stories through um, the radio platforms and now um, through their national television, cable television station, TV One. Let's talk about this uh, hairdressing equipment over here. What's yes. the significance of this? So the hairdressing equipment we have here is from the first hair salon in North Brentwood. The owner also had a facility or a salon on U Street. And at the time, the early 1920s, um, U Street corridor in Washington, D.C. was... Um, revered as the Black Broadway, given that African-Americans were disenfranchised and were not allowed to perform in varied professional concert halls, theaters, etc. We see the U Street Corridor, we had the Howard Theater, we had the, the Lincoln Theater, which was the first integrated space, integrated music hall, rather, in the country, that we see Black entertainment really blossoming and really setting the trajectory for what everyone knows, the Harlem Renaissance in the later half of the 1920s and early 30s. But here we do see some of uh, the very early tools as far as African-American hair care. We see um, in this very large case, we have a very old model um, hair dryer. We have a couple hot combs. And for those that don't know, a hot comb is actually like a tool or wooden comb that you would put against heat 
um, you would press it against your hair and comb through your hair. And as the heat hits your hair, it will straighten it. It will flatten it. Um, so it's just changing the texture from coils and kinks to more of a, a straight texture. So we see here a variety of hot combs and straightening utensils. Um, and I think here, we, I often see a lot of people have conversation here because it brings back fam family memories of people getting their hair done in front of the stove because that's what they would use to heat up the hot comb. Or um, There's a lot of connectivity as far as African-American woman culture because hair care and beauty are something that we're still fascinated with. I think we are experts and we, have, we just have so much fun with our hair. And I think... That's why this, this part of the museum garners a lot of communication and conversation. Um, so you often see people just stop here and dialogue for 15, 20 minutes. I mean, that's the dream in a museum, right? Yes. yes. So to have an object that inspires reflection and historical like sharing between generations. Yes, indeed. Here we have um, one of the campaign signs from the first African-American county executive, Wayne Curry. Uh, Wayne Curry served two terms um, between 1994 and 2002. He was our county executive, the first African-American um, in Prince George's. And since then, we've just had African-American representation most recently with our current county executive, Rashawn Baker III. Nice little bit of campaign history there. Yes. Yes, we are a very political space. Given that we're next to a very political city, Washington, D.C., a lot of Prince Georgian's work in the public sector, whether it be at local government or on, in the federal government. So we do have a very active um, political community here in Prince George's. Wayne Curry's is a fascinating life to learn more about. A county executive may not seem like the most glamorous role in history, but think about it this way. Curry became the first county executive for Prince George's County in 1994. In 2013, Tim Scott's election as South Carolina senator marked the first time a Southern state had elected an African-American senator since Reconstruction. 2013 was also the first time that two African-Americans had ever served simultaneously in the Senate. Maryland has never had an African-American senator, despite African-Americans making up nearly 30% of the total state population. More context. When Curry was elected as Prince George's County Executive in 1994, Maryland had only had three African-American congressmen, the third being elected just the year before. Those of us who are white often don't realize how important local representation can be. But for the African-American majority of Prince George's County, having representation on the county level was a big deal. I think it's worth taking a few minutes to hear about Curry's life in his own words. He passed away in 2014, but here's a few clips from several years ago where Curry is talking about Prince George's County history with County Council Chair Andrea C. Harrison. It's not enough to talk about diversity. Uh, locally or in this state or in this country, you have to talk about inclusion. And the battles that were fought in my childhood about both diversity and inclusion were, I think, important ingredients of the later successes I had in politics, at least, and, and in business as well. Um, so it's, 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 been, uh, it's been a fabulous place to, to live. I, I can recall my childhood here and the years in the 50s um, when the place was very different. 
largely known for tobacco farms, stars and bars, and all the other things that were typical of any southern um, state and, and the hamlets in any southern state. The African-American community was small and largely was agricultural and agrarian, you know, working uh, tobacco farms and others uh, around the area. And then, of course, um, um, we managed to live in one of the segregated um, African-American enclaves just outside of D.C., growing up uh, beyond Fairmont Heights and, and North Inglewood and the Chevrolet vicinity and the fourth ward of uh, Chevrolet. So I remember those days and, and, and what it was like. I remember uh, my brother and I and one other guy from the neighborhood uh, integrating the elementary school at Chevrolet Tuxedo across the railroad tracks, the proverbial tracks. and remembering that it was a much different place and that while we were happy as children and unaware of the, the history and tensions of Prince George's County, that it was even then a unique place. A lot of people think that the civil rights movement was what they observed on television. And if you're not familiar with what it was like to live up south here, then <laughs> maybe folks can misconstrue what's happened because of how grand it's been since then. But this was every bit of segregated southern community with everything that went with that and, and was, uh, um, and progress was a hard fought battle. But they were people right here in Prince George's County fighting for progress and, and so, um, you know, that's what you grew up with when you looked out the door. These folks were, were literally titans. They were icons of, of progress and they had guts. They were willing to fight for opportunities for the rest of us and they were a phalanx of people between their children and all the indignities of, of segregation and they fought for that and that was something that gets into you. It's something that, that tempers your, your resolve and, and, and your principles and later becomes you know, important to what you do. I doubt seriously that I would have had the, the passionate interest that I've had in public service and um, public affairs if it hadn't been for those kind of models, those kind of people showing you what, what the price of being in a community is. And in Prince George's County, it ultimately culminated in those much later years when, when I was elected county executive and a lot of the social warfare was over, or at least wasn't conspicuous anymore. It led to this novelty of Prince George's County, which at the time and remains the only example in American history, not Prince George's County history, not Washington Metro history, not Maryland history, in United States history of a jurisdiction to, to go from being virtually all white, rural and small, when I was a child, to be a majority African-American, cosmopolitan, and big by county standards where income and education went up and not down.
With the exception of our permanent collection, we change exhibitions about every four to six months. And we do a mix of anthropological, ethnographic exhibitions, and contemporary art. At this time, we do have two contemporary art exhibitions. The, The room we're in now, we're looking at If I Knew Then What I Know Now. It is curated by Yaya Bay. It is a group show with regional artists from Baltimore, uh, well, actually North Carolina, up to Washington, D.C. And what she's looking at is Black childhood, given the accessibility to internet and other digital technologies. We love working with Yaya. It's her second show here. And she does something a little funky each time with her curatorial statement. Last time, she did a poem. This time, she just offered prompts of questions for the audience and for the artists as well. Um, And these questions are on a chalkboard wall. So she actually wants guests to come in and write their responses on the wall and to become a part of the exhibition. Would you read some of those prompts? Yeah, I would love to. If I knew then what I know now, a reimagining a former Black childhood through today's lens. What are your thoughts on the age of information? What does it mean to be Black in the age of information? How do you think your Black childhood would have been different if you had grown up with access and platform that Black folks have now? Is Black Twitter a witch hunt? Have you found healing on the internet? Now that we collectively know more about the intersections of Blackness, how do you think that will inform Black childhood today? What does the future of Blackness look like in a digital space? Has the internet made intersectional Blackness more visible? And lastly, do you feel seen? And um, I'll just share a little bit about, you know, conversation I had with Yaya that led up to this exhibition. We're talking about Instagram and Twitter and how all of these platforms really, they make Black culture so available and accessible that we're wondering how and if we do need to safeguard some of our cultural nuances and some of our shared and sacred Activities like, for example, you may see on Instagram or on Twitter a lending of a seat to the cookout to um, a white person who does something that is commendable or maybe just humane. (laughs) So it's like, do they need to necessarily come to the cookout, which has been a, a very intimate black sacred space for their activity, which just makes them a good person? So we were talking a little bit about how we pass out a noble baton for behavior that is really just humane and Mm. and great behavior. Um, But additionally, um, we're talking about or looking at now that, say, growing up as a queer uh, black child, in the 1990s, you may not have had any representations of yourself. But now that you have the Internet, you can Google and search ways to feel affirmed and validated in your unique experience. So... Those are some of the things that kind of prompted Yaya's um, agenda with this exhibition. And um, it's definitely one of my favorite spaces. The space is very colorful. Mm -hmm. It feels very warm. There's a lot of... Um, installation pieces. There's a great use of hair, uh, yeah. <laughs> having it draped from the ceiling, having it used as a, a hopscotch. So right here, we are really in a space that feels like um, a kindergarten classroom almost. What's the significance of these two installation pieces up here? So Yaya, she mentioned that she wanted it to feel like we were on a playground. And so what we see often on a playground um, is that sometimes you make you make shift and you make things serve a new purpose. So she used this crate to signify um, as if it were a basketball hoop, because oftentimes in neighborhoods that are deprived of certain resources, 
folk will get creative and they will use what they find and refurbish it to make it something to their enjoyment. So we do have a crate on the wall against um, like a wood um, plank, if you would, and it's spray painted, If I Only Knew. And again, she's just looking to add some of those playground elements. Yeah. Additionally, we do have a set of sneakers hanging from the ceiling. And I've had some dialogue and various people have various interpretations of what sneakers hanging mean. So this is to represent a sneakers on a shoe line. From where I grew up, sneakers on the shoe line marked where someone was murdered and or typically murdered um, was kind to revere that area as their spirit still occupying this space. Um, but I've heard now some different interpretations. Folks say that the shoes could represent um, a neighborhood line. So like if everyone in my, my neighborhood wears Converse or New Balance or Vans, we put it up to kind of mark our territory or define our neighborhood boundaries. Um, so there's varied interpretations of that specific urban experience. Given whatever region of the country you're in, the shoes on the, on the, on the, the phone line would have a different meaning. The three full-time and three part-time staff members of the museum have to be creative in maximizing the available space in their cozy museum building. A permanent exhibit on the faces and voices of North Brentwood history fills the hallway, and the office cubicles double as spillover storage for artwork. They've also created some great spaces outside their museum. Malik and I head outside to look at their gorgeous mural and event space. While we walk around the side to see the mural, Malik tells me about their three key school programs. Yes, so actually we should walk around and look at the mural. So the Culture Keepers program is a part of our cultural passport series. We have a partnership with Prince George's County Public Schools, and we have three programs that we serve um, throughout the county to over 72 schools, which impact over 5,000 students on a yearly basis. Um, and those programs are Early Keepers, which is for our elementary school audience. It has a, a lot of call and response, performance-based activity, looking again at African-American history in Prince George's County. Um, our second program, Museum in a Box, is where our, where our educators actually open up a past exhibition. They offer a guided tour. There's a series of dialogue, lecture, and then the students leave with an art project, whether it be painting or a collage or quilting. Each Museum in a Box has a different art product that the students leave with, but that's our second signature program. And lastly, my personal favorite is Culture Keepers. We work with three schools um, throughout the school year, and the students will investigate a specific theme. Um, this year, again, their theme was Afrofuturism. They communicate their research to their larger public through mounting their exhibition and through hosting a youth-led conference. Last year, the inaugural conference was um, held at the University of Maryland, which was great because our students had the opportunity to um, present their academic research in an academic institution of higher learning with professors, college students, and community members. Right now, we're outside looking at a mural that was painted in 2012 by students from St. Paulo, Brazil. Um, so in 2012, the museum did some cultural exchange. Um, we had a group of students from St. Paulo spend a week in Prince George's County, and we had our students, our culture keepers, spend a week in St. Paulo, Brazil, and both students um, had an opportunity to engage one another in dialogue and conversation as their experience as Young people, their shared experience as members of the African diaspora. And next year, or not next year rather, in 2020, our goal is to send students to um, the Royal Bafokin region in South Africa. It's the county's sister city. 
and and actually per the request of the king there who modeled a school after his visit to Prince George's County he was so inspired by Suitland High School that he modeled a vocational school performing arts school um, in the Royal Bafokin region so we hope for our 10-year anniversary we can continue in our international exchange and send another group of students and uh, this mural is is got a sister mural in San Paulo that the students did there. Maybe you said that. Correct. Yeah. So our students did complete a series of murals in San Paulo, and additionally, we have a mural in the county at Suitland High School. It's much larger than this one, although this one is beautiful. Um, the one at Suitland High School is massive. So our students are were hot in the summer sun, <laughs> painting away, and we're glad that we can look at the the murals now and and kind of think about that experience and what it meant for the young people at that time. Um, would you show me your new uh, event space? Yes, I would love the to. The former, I hear, former sculpture garden. Yes, so we're still using the language sculpture garden because it's familiar with us. But I just noticed today it's not a garden, nor does it have sculptures. <laughs> so <laughs> we may need to rethink um, what we call this patio pavilion space. So in October of last year, 2017, we constructed this patio space. We have a wooded deck. We have a stage. We have some lights for nightlife entertainment and, you know, so it's well lit in the evening hours as well as some shading units. It's a very beautiful space. And I think as a museum, we really situate ourselves as one that not only produces scholastic, scholarly, artistic content, but also we produce a lot of events and that's a way for us to ac activate the space. So we're currently on our um, wooded patio, walking towards the stage, and it was used the first time last year at our Rated PG Black Arts Festival. Um, the Rated PG Black Arts Festival is a black womanist festival, and we decided to produce a festival specifically for black women given the disproportionate representation in the museum field as far as um, exhibiting artists, black women who are in leadership roles, so the museum, which was once led prior to uh, my tenure here by Chanel Compton, it was actually her child and, and her, her vision to lead a black women's festival. So last year we had artwork only by black women and, black, and, and women identifying persons in the inside gallery space. And outside we had that echoed as well with our vendor market um, and with the performing artists that performed at the Rated PG Black Arts Festival. This year we'll host another Rated PG Black Arts Festival, um, but what we're doing is something very exciting called Black Futures Week. So the week prior we'll have um, a series of events that target different audiences and demographics just to make it a little bit more intersectional. But with Black Futures Week we're really investigating, as the Culture Keepers were, what does a prosperous future for Black people look like given that we can imagine it, um, but there is a lack of that representation in media as mm -hmm. far as what does it look like for black people to occupy in the future, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we're investigating that in very real ways. We're really excited that we just got partnership with a lot of civic organizations here in the area. Black Lives Matter, Washington DC chapters hosting a program, um, Black Youth Project 100, the Black Upstart, which looks at black entrepreneurship, the Swaliga Foundation, which is focused on STEAM advocacy and access for young children. Um, so we have a, a plethora of partners that will be activating this space in September, and we're excited for our second annual um, Black Arts Festival. Back inside and out of the Maryland heat, I'm curious to know about Malik's long-term strategy for the museum and how he sees it growing and adapting in the future. 
But what's the kind of, what's the grand vision? What do you, in this role, what do you hope to accomplish? What do you hope will be different in five years here? In five years, I would like for us to have, to be a model institution, um, a community-led institution. Um, Right now, I'm developing a fellowship program that looks at a community-based curation model so that we are representing our community in the way that we communicate research. So for me, it's really situating the museum as one that is very much so connected to the community. I think we're already there, but I think we have some efforts to do as far as accessibility for those who have physical, um, cognitive impairments or disabilities. So, you know, making sure that we are really advocating and creating an inclusive space for all learning capacities. Um, And lastly, as any nonprofit, for us to be fiscally sound and stable, I think we're making great efforts, but I would love for us to garner some serious corporate sponsorship um, and, and investment. I think we have a lot of major corporations moving to Prince George's. They often send their staff here to learn a little bit about the new community, but the next level for, would be for them to invest in the museum so that we can make sure that we're always here for the new residents. So, And lastly, um, something I'm really looking at is something I'm calling the head and heart model, where people come in the museum and their, their head is fed with the anthropological, ethnographic exhibitions, but then their heart is felt as they go towards the back and they get to the contemporary art exhibition. So having the way for both gallery spaces to complement one another, what we're really looking at again is Howard Garner's nine intelligences. And, you know, when you have all academics at the table, um, they may not be communicating to the seven-year-old, or they may not be communicating to the adult who is on the autism spectrum, or they may not be communicating to the elder, or they may not be uh, communicating to their Latinx um, neighbor. So it's really looking at a model that brings diverse perspectives and diverse peoples to the table so that when we are crafting exhibitions, we make sure that everyone can leave with something. At their worst, museums are elite spaces that value objects over people. But at their best, museums are catalysts for community engagement and individual growth. Malik's five-year goal for the Prince George's African American Museum and Cultural Center is to be a model of a museum by, for, and of the community. This museum is clearly on the right path to that goal, and I can only hope that more museums will follow in their footsteps and prioritize vibrant learning and meeting places over gated halls of nostalgia. Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Maryland's museums. Today's episode was sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. Music in this episode is by Alex Vaughn, a musician from the greater Washington, D.C. area. You can see photos of the museum, learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, and find more of Alex Vaughn's music on my website, hhethman.com. That's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com. Text saying good morning. I don't know 
why I keep forcing it. I mean, it's, it's just boring and I can't help the morning shit. Feeling like the reminiscent blocking new beginnings. If you enjoy museums and strange places, please help me keep it going by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing this episode with a friend. Interested in starting a podcast at your organization? Check out my new book, Your Museum Needs a Podcast, a step-by-step guide to podcasting on a budget for museums, history organizations, and cultural nonprofits. Your Museum Needs a Podcast is available on Amazon as an ebook, paperback, and audible audiobook. Thank you.